Our reading today is from the beginning of Mark's 8th chapter, and we'll read the first 21 verses. So we're in Mark chapter 8, and we're reading from verse 1. In those days, the multitude being very great, and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples unto him and saith unto them, I have compassion on the multitude, because they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away fasting to their own houses, they will faint by the way, for diverse of them came from far. And his disciples answered him, From whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness? And he asked them, How many loaves have ye? And they said, Seven. And he commanded the people to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks and break and gave to his disciples to set before them. And they did set them before the people. And they had a few small fishes, and he blessed them, commanded to set them also before them. So they did eat and were filled. And they took up the... He took up of the broken meat that was left, seven baskets. And they that had eaten were about four thousand, and he sent them away. And straight away he entered into a ship with his disciples and came into the parts of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees came forth and began to question with him, seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why doth this generation seek after a sign? Verily I say unto you, there shall no sign be given unto this generation. And he left them and entered into the ship again. Entering into the ship again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, neither had they in the ship Uh, with them more than one loaf and he charged them saying take heed beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod and they reasoned among themselves saying it's because we have no bread and when Jesus knew it he saith unto them why reason ye because you have no bread perceive ye not yet neither understand have ye your heart yet hardened Having eyes, see ye not, and having ears, hear ye not, and do ye not remember? When I break the five loaves among five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? They say unto him, Twelve. And when the seven among the four thousand, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? And they said, Seven. And he said unto them, How is it that ye do not understand? Amen. Well, our reading covers three episodes there. It it is tempting to treat each of these um, as separate sermons. And there are cases where it's more useful to focus on a small section. But today, I thought it best to take in a larger section to help us get 
an overview of what's going on. These three episodes of feeding the crowd, the dispute with the Pharisees, and a conversation with the disciples are very much connected. The use of literal bread at the start, the use of bread as a figure afterwards, are like a pair of brackets with the Pharisee dispute in the middle. You might be interested here that there are striking parallels between this chapter and the previous ones we've looked at. In chapter 6, we have a crowd of people followed by a lake crossing, just like in chapter 8. Back in chapter 7, we have a dispute with the Pharisees followed by a discussion about bread. And we see those two elements in our reading today also. And finally, chapter 7 goes on to include a healing followed by a confession of faith. And in the next week or two, we'll see those two factors repeated in chapter 8. Now, even though we have this parallel structure, there are differences. Our present chapter is in a different location for the start. The types of basket used in the two mass feedings were different. And the quantities of bread and fish were different. And this second crowd was made up of Gentiles. And you know, we should take note that they had, they'd spent a lot longer with Jesus than the, the crowd we mentioned previously. They'd gone for three days. Three days with little or no food. And it just shows how especially attracted they were to the ministry of Jesus. If you read Bible commentaries at all, at home, you'll come across this notion that the two feedings of the multitudes were one event. The reason some commentators conclude this is because they just can't believe the disciples would ask that same question again. Remember, they asked Jesus, how on earth are we going to feed all these people out here in the middle of nowhere? Same question they asked last time. And some people find it so difficult to accept that the disciples' hearts would be so hardened, they surmise this is the same event, but reported differently. I think it's very clear these are two separate events. For one thing, our reading today ended with Jesus quizzing the disciples about two events, drawing out for them details that prove they're distinct. But that question remains. How could the disciples be so, well, stupid? They'd seen Jesus feed a crowd before. They'd seen them create myriad copies of loaves and some fish. They knew quite well how all these people could be fed. That the disciples were hard-hearted was made clear by Jesus himself in the reading. But before we start shaking our heads in disappointment, I thought I'd offer some possible explanations 
for their surprising question. Uh, firstly, this incident might have been months after the first one. And since Jesus drew crowds wherever he went, there will likely have been occasions when the crowds went home without being fed, not, not being in as much need. So that was, that was the normal, that was the normal uh, way things went. Uh, but secondly, the disciples may have questioned whether Jesus could feed a crowd of Gentiles. They didn't yet see clearly Jesus was about to cause an explosion of the gospel, the shockwaves of which would reverberate all around the world. As I told you last week, this gospel era was a fulfilment of a prophecy in Isaiah. And thirdly, we might propose the disciples were just shown they didn't take Jesus' miracles for granted. They may have thought it sinfully presumptuous to assume Jesus was going to feed the crowd by use of a miracle. Well, also significant about where we are in this gospel account now is we're roughly at the halfway stage and we're about to witness a fundamental shift in the direction this gospel takes. Up till now we've seen Jesus darting around Galilee, healing and teaching. And what we'll see in the weeks before us is Project Jerusalem, the series of events leading to Calvary, and all of it preceded by a clear confession of faith from Peter. What I want us to meditate on today is about bread and more particularly leaven. Now, you may be aware leaven is a raising agent used in baking. Some translations use the word yeast. Well, technically, the leaven in the Bible wasn't yeast, but it's close enough. It's close enough for our purposes to think of it as yeast. In your Bible reading, you'll have come across leaven. Of course, you'll have seen it used in different ways. Contained in the Mosaic law are commands about the use of leaven. Some offerings to God were of unleavened bread, while in other offerings the bread was baked with leaven in the normal way. If you want an example of each, have a look at Exodus chapter 12 from verse 15. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 12 verse 15 seven days shall you eat unleavened bread even the first day you shall put away leaven out of your houses for whosoever eateth leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day that soul shall be cut off from Israel and then there's another one in Leviticus <clears throat> in Leviticus uh, chapter 7 and verse 13 it says Besides the cakes, he shall offer for his offering leavened bread with the sacrifice of thanksgiving of his peace offerings. 
The reasons why God required both leavened and unleavened bread in the sacrifices is a study for another time. But we can take note that just as bread in its unleavened state is more prominent in the law, in the New Testament we see leaven used mostly in a negative sense. It's used figuratively and it usually denotes sin, although Matthew uses it to symbolise the rise not of sin but of the kingdom of God itself. But here, Jesus continues the tradition of its usual use as a metaphor for sin. It's a small ingredient in the baker's mix, but its effects are great. And he teaches us that sin is subtle, can start off as something very small and seemingly insignificant, but it can end up in destruction and death. I want us today then to consider the warning in our text from Jesus. Beware of the leaven of sin. Leaven is also used to represent more particular aspects of sin, like malice and hypocrisy. And we're going to spend a short time thinking of some aspects of sin we should be aware of. Firstly, beware of the leaven of unbelief. Unbelief. This is, of course, found throughout the whole of mankind. This is our natural state when we come into this world. Now, just to be clear, by unbelief, we don't mean absence of belief in the existence of God. A lot of people believe that. Two-thirds of the British population believe in some sort of higher power, even if some prefer not to call it God. And that's in a country. That's in a country regarded as one of the most irreligious in the world. Most of the other countries in the world have a higher percentage of people who believe in God than Britain. Sad, really. And yet even here, even here, There's a belief by most that we are overseen by some almighty power. So we're not talking about a belief in the existence of God. We're talking about a belief that he is a personal, all-powerful, all-knowing God who has accomplished salvation from sin through Jesus Christ. We're talking about a belief This saviour is our saviour. It's about placing our entire trust in him for our deliverance. Jesus warns about the terrible sin of unbelief. You may remember a while back in Mark's gospel, we saw Jesus stunned by the level of unbelief among the people. So much so, He did very little in the way of healings in that place. If our country is as unbelieving as the research tells us, it's in an awful place. All the while atheists celebrate 
what they see as the decline in Christianity. Our nation sits under God's judgment. It's good to pray for your country and your countrymen. The Apostle Paul had a deep love for his countrymen. And we can foster the same kind of love by daily begging God to have mercy on our nation. He's still at work, you know. He's still at work every day. Only the other day, uh, a colleague in the prison ministry mentioned one of the prisoners. This lad had got hold of a Bible in order to show Christianity was false. Instead, the word of God persuaded him of his need of a saviour. He repented and trusted in Jesus Christ and now he's testifying to other prisoners. So we have a warning about unbelief. Let's move on to the next point. Beware of the leaven of false religion. False religion. It's not surprising given most people in the world believe in God that they adhere to some religion or other. And of those, most, nearly all, make the wrong choices. Most religious people are in spiritual bondage to sin and Satan right now. In today's story, Jesus encounters false religionists. Remember, almost all false religion is an uncontrolled outgrowth from true religion. The roots of popery, going way back to the early church, are in evangelical Christianity. Even the pick and mix religion of Islam stole most of its ideology from Christianity and Judaism. At the time of Jesus' advent, the religion of the Jews was a corruption of what was once a God-given true religion. As we've seen, man-made traditions were introduced that eventually overtook the godly foundations of the Hebrew religion. It became so bad, Jesus warned people, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaders in the religious establishment at that time. The phrase actually in our passage talks about the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod here. And in one sense, the, the leaven can be thought of as the same in both cases. It was indwelling sin that caused the false ideas of both the Pharisees and Herod. One result of the leaven of the Pharisees was the request they made in our passage. They asked Jesus for a sign from heaven. Now, <clears throat> it's interesting to note the Pharisees will have either uh, witnessed genuine miracles performed by Jesus or heard of them from eyewitnesses they counted as reliable. That wasn't good enough for them. They didn't want just another miracle. They wanted confirmation from God in heaven himself. Their request was refused quite pointedly. 
Mark exaggerates the bluntness of it by abbreviating the conversation. Jesus asks them why they want a sign and tells them he won't give them one. He wasn't going to be distracted from his ministry by some signs circus. Certainly one of the purposes in his miracles was to confirm his authority as God's prophet. But his miracles of feeding and healing were also expressions of compassion that naturally flowed from him. He was no more likely to perform some impressive stunt here than he was when the devil tempted him to prove who he was by throwing himself off a building. In both cases, the requests were thoroughly sinful. In recent years, we've seen an explosion of churches who claim to exercise gifts from God in the form of miraculous signs. For some of these people, at least, there's a, there's a need for signs. And this, this, this is sinful. And another change we've seen in Western Christendom over the past century or so is in social work. Not so much today, but we, we need only go back a hundred years or so to see there were people in society who were genuinely in need. And if you go back to Victorian England, it had its fair share of poor people. There was genuine hunger. I don't mean people begging for money because the money they get in welfare benefits have been blown on drugs. There was no state-run welfare system. The church stepped up to the mark. They fed the hungry. They provided shelter for homeless people. They provided support for people who had drink problems and the like. The Liverpool City Mission, to which our own church belongs, has always been very active in providing for the material needs of our communities as well as its spiritual needs. But with the state structures in place today, there's far less need for Christians to engage in these activities. But the people out there believe this is the church's main job. <laughs> and it's for this reason many churches then feel obliged to engage in social action in order to prove they're genuine. Now our priority in social work is the church, the Lord's people. Our care is shown especially towards them. And secondarily, it's other people in society. And if no need, if no genuine need exists, we don't try to pretend that there is a need just so we can then engage in activities to prove we're real Christians. But how will they know we're genuine? Some will, some will ask that. But what you should remember is your faithfulness in attending worship is a sign to the world. Your consistency 
in walking in God's ways is a sign to them. And your genuine love for them when they're in genuine need will also have an impression on them. We don't need to invent anything spectacular to show them we mean business. We looked then at the leaven of unbelief and the leaven of false religion. And now we look at our third point. Beware of the leaven of false doctrine, of bad doctrine. Let's say a man, by the grace of God, has left unbelief behind. Let's say, let's say by the, the guidance of God, he escapes the trap of false religion. Let's say God in his mercy leads him to full and free salvation in Jesus Christ. He yet faces many dangers. The disciples on the boat have got it wrong again. When Jesus tells them to beware of the leaven of the religious leaders, they assume he's talking about not buying a few loaves of bread. And this is why we see Jesus rebuking them. We see in a different, <coughs> we see in a different account of this episode, they, they eventually realise he's talking about false doctrine. Christ's rebuke came in a form of seven questions. Do you not see? Do you not understand? Is your heart so hardened? And, and so on. If they were astute enough, they'd perceive Jesus was using a humbling question from God found in Isaiah. If you take a look at <coughs> Isaiah um, Chapter 40 and verse 21, you read, Have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundations of the earth? It's the same tactic here, bombarding the listeners with questions to force them to examine themselves. It may sound harsh to us, but you must remember the rebukes of Jesus Christ to his followers are as much acts of love as his praise and encouragement. He deeply loved his disciples and he deeply loves you who are his disciples today. And he'll rebuke you and chasten you in order to keep you from sin. Keep an eye on your beliefs, he tells them. Keep your eyes sharp for the emergence of faulty doctrine, whatever the source. If they took their lead from the Pharisees, they too would be asking for a sign. They too would be steeped in unbelief and absolute hardness of heart. Jesus had been teaching them a different way. A spiritual way. But it's as if they hadn't learned anything. It reminds, us of, it reminds us of their forefathers in the wilderness. They'd received food, manna, from heaven itself. Yet they didn't learn to have faith in God as a result. 
We who believe are faced with the same threat of false doctrine today. It may appear in different forms, it may come from different sources, but it's there. And it can be found in books, in Christian bookshops. It can be found in academic papers coming from theological colleges. And it can come from our pulpits. You need to be careful, brethren, what you read and what you listen to. When you read a Christian book, just take what's good from it, but always be on your guard. No matter who the author is. And this principle applies to the preaching you hear from this very pulpit. I haven't been vaccinated against getting things wrong. Now, <clears throat> I am very careful. <laughs> I am very careful. I consider everything that I preach to you. But you should develop an attitude of friendly wariness. And I'll be glad if you do. Be wary. That's the Berean spirit. The leaven of unbelief. The leaven of false doctrine. Uh, beg your pardon, the, the, the leaven of false religion. Then we looked at the leaven of bad doctrine. And as we wage warfare for our captain, we should mark these three as enemies of God and do all we can to put them to death in others as well as ourselves. I'd like to give you some uh, exhortations now as you wage this warfare. I encourage you firstly to lean more on God. He's given you access to the courts of heaven where you can make requests for help. And he's provided an inspired, written word for us to make use of as much as we can. Like this multitude in the scriptures did, you should seek spiritual things before material. And of course, I have to mention the ministry of the word. It was never God's intention to create believers who would live their lives by only reading the Bible for themselves. He raises men up to expound the scriptures, to, to help you. This is one of the means he's given you as a gift. And Christians should seek out faithful ministry and make full use of it. And if you've found someone who you trust, then pray for him. Pray about your pastor's preparation. Pray about his private devotions. Pray about how he balances these things with his family responsibilities. And pray that his preaching would be in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Here's a New Testament reference to leaven applicable to today's message in 1 Corinthians 5 and 8. We read, Therefore, let us keep the feast not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 
And in order to encourage this sincerity and truth within ourselves, we must look to the means God has provided. You know, I had to, for some time in the week, I had to consider this line of questioning by Jesus, which is in, 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 in one sense anyway, uh, slightly unusual. I wanted to know why Jesus was trying to draw out from the disciples the numbers of baskets of leftovers after he's fed these crowds why did the original accounts even mention leftovers was the point was the point of the, the thing not, not to demonstrate his compassion was it not to show his power wasn't it primarily to picture the grace he shows through the ages in saving souls Yes, all of these, but all those points were made through the feeding itself. So why these details about leftovers? When we went through the book of Revelation together, there were many examples of numbers being used symbolically. You can't avoid it. Yet, we still need to be careful before attaching particular meaning to numbers used in other parts of scripture. Sometimes they just don't matter. Here we might venture to say the numbers of baskets 12 and 7 indicate to us the fullness of God's provision. Those, those two numbers being significant uh, in, in the book of Revelation. Um, I say that very tentatively, but what I declare confidently is what the leftovers speak of in a more general way. The abundance of leftovers tells us the grace of God in Christ is likewise abundant. The grace of God is so vast, it will be seen in the end of days to have been exercised to eternally save a multitude that no man can number beware friends of the leaven of sin and when you see the disciples and people in our own day like them don't judge them harshly remember the light you have was given to you don't be cocky and even those truths you do hold, you only understand them partially. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 2 tells us, If any man thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing as he ought to know. Jesus calls you to be faithful. He calls you to run the race without the need for signs. He calls you to watch out for the leaven that can so easily give rise to all manner of sin. And he calls you to be charitable towards those whose understanding is less than yours. Amen.